Who's watched the movie Man on Fire? Can I know? It's right. You're not going to... Hands up. Who's watched Man on Fire? I just want to know I'm talking to you. Long time ago. Denzel Washington goes on the rampage, kills everybody. Kills everybody. Okay, for those who haven't watched it, it's really old, so I'm going to give you the spoiler. But at the end, he actually ransoms his life for a little girl. It's a great movie. It's not a Christian movie. It's an amazing movie. There's a lyric in one of the songs we just sang now. Where's Richard? Richard? It says, um, set your church on fire. It's a great line. I think if I plant a church, I'm going to call it church on fire. That's what I want to call it. We should be a church that ransoms people. That's what we should be. We should go on the rampage to ransom people. But I want to speak about churches on fire this morning. And, um, and I'm going to offend somebody this morning. I'm t- I promise you. I, pr- I promise you. I'm just telling you. I just, I'm warning you right up front. I'm going to offend you this morning. So just, just be ready for it. Just be ready. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you. We're preaching, we, we, we're preaching through a series in Galatians. And, and Galatians is about a group of people in the church that start performing or going back to sort of rituals and religion because I think it's the basis for salvation, or that it'll please God or bring them closer to God. And I want to look at Scripture this morning. We're actually going to look at 38 verses of Scripture. I'm going to read more Scripture and then just comment along the way. But we're going to look at a whole heap of Scripture, because sometimes we've got to set the church on fire. Sometimes we've got to burn religion down. You have to. It, sounds like, it, it almost sounds like a heretical thing to say. By, by the silence, it almost sounds like what I'm saying is heresy. It's like blasphemy. But there's actually a time when you have to burn the church to the ground. Why did Jesus come to die? Why did he die? What did he die for? So I'm going to look at those reasons today, but I'm looking at one in particular. Why did Jesus die? There's lots of reasons, guys. Why did he die? For? For our sins. What else? Why did he die? What else? That's right. Okay. To say, Fine. What else? To set us free from what? Who said that? Okay, from laws, from what else? Okay, to cancel the legal demands of the law, to save us from ourselves. He also came to abolish circumcision and all rituals as a basis for salvation. He had satisfied everything. He said no more. He, he died. He died to abolish something. He gave his life to abolish things that sometimes we still do in the church. He hates it. He hates it when we bring rituals back into the church. He hates it. He died for it, to abolish it. That's one of the reasons he died. There are many reasons why Jesus died, but one of them was to abolish circumcision and any rituals as a basis for salvation. I want to look at those this morning. I want to look at the reasons Jesus died, what he's come for. In Galatians 1 verse 18, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. This is Paul speaking. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Can you say receive? Put your hands out. Open your hands. Say receive. We're going to look at how to receive this morning. One of the problems in the Galatian church was that they didn't understand how to receive. The gospel is received. By revelation of Jesus Christ. No other way. You can't get it by doing anything else. You don't deserve it. You deserve nothing. You receive it. It's just received. We had two women staying with us this whole week. They left yesterday afternoon. 
So one woman is a, has a, is a former Buddhist, has been a Buddhist most of her life. She's now trying to figure out Christianity. The other lady is struggling with many things. And on Thursday night, she had a big night out. And she came home smashed. And she woke up the next morning, and, and she was filled with so much guilt and shame. And, and we said to her, we, we want to take you guys out for dinner. And she protested, you know, I've got to pay. I'll pay and I'll contribute. And we said, no, no, we're just going to take you out for dinner. And we had to say to her, you have to learn how to receive. This is a Christian house. My house is a Christian house. Not a perfect house, but it's a Christian house. And in our house, you've got to receive things. You just get to receive it. It's no condemnation. She had a big night out. She felt terrible in the morning. She felt so guilty and shameful because she's staying with us. And we've known her for such a long time. And she just lost control. And we just said, there's no condemnation here. You just got to learn to receive. And so we told them about the gospel and we explained it because someone else pays in the gospel. You never pay. Jesus paid. You don't pay. If you think you're paying for it, you're wrong. You're mistaken. Then it takes away the offense of the cross. That's what it says in Galatians. All right, let me stay on track here. So we're going to look at receiving this morning, what it looks like to receive. And we're going to read through 38 verses of scripture. If you can put up Matthew chapter 9 for me, and then what we're going to do is we're actually just going to go through it bit by bit. I'm going to read, and I'm just going to pause and and just make a few comments. From verse 1, Matthew chapter 9. So if you've got Bibles, please open it and just follow with me. I'm reading from the NRV version. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. A paralyzed man would never, ever have made it to the temple to sacrifice anything to God. They were Jews. This was a sacrificial system. You sacrificed for the atonement of your sin. A paralyzed guy would never have got to the altar. Never, ever. And if he was a Levite, he was even forbidden from doing it. It says in Leviticus 21, you can't go there. If you're a Levite and you have any form of physical or physical ailment on your body, you can't get there. So this guy was prevented from ever, ever being able to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of his sin. Paralyzed. When Jesus saw their faith, this is the friend, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. They're always the religious people in the background hating whatever Jesus is doing because he turns religion on its head. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. There is no one in that story that deserved forgiveness. Nobody. Paralyzed man certainly didn't. The friends didn't. And there's actually no mention of either their obedience or their deserving of any forgiveness of Jesus. Not one bit. The paralyzed man could never offer a sacrifice for his atonement. Atonement is a made-up word. It actually means at one mint. It's made up. It means to be at one mint with God. And he could never, ever go and offer a sacrifice to be at one mint with God. So he was apart from God, according to the religious system. Jesus saw his friend's faith, forgave his sins. It's an amazing story. And he just received it. He just received. He just received it. 
One of the reasons Jesus came, so that we could meet God. You see, he could never get to God in the temple. Jesus came so we could meet God. Jesus came so we could have access to God. And he came to heal spiritual and physical sicknesses. One of the misconceptions in the church is that bad people shouldn't come here. I was speaking to a lady on Friday, and they're having relational issues, her and her mother, and they've been having it since childhood, since her childhood. And I said, you need to go to church with your mom. She said, if my mother goes into the church, the church will burn. Huh? The church will burn. Jesus came so that those people who could never get to church, who would never be welcome in a church, will have access to God. That's what he came for. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew pens the first gospel. The gospel is actually the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. It's not the gospel of Matthew. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew pens it. Matthew's a tax collector. He doesn't go to seminary. He's never been to Bible college. He doesn't have a B theology. He has absolutely no theological training. And God chooses him to go into ministry. We have a preconceived idea that we have to somehow listen to someone with a degree or some sort of educated training because they must know more. It's inherent in us that we seem to believe that there are, that there are educated, hierarchical people that must understand the gospel more than others. Guys, it's absolute rubbish. It's rubbish. If you're a born-again Christian, Jesus has put his spirit inside you which means you've supernaturally changed, which means you have a supernatural ability to read what's in the Bible. If you sit with someone who's got a doctorate in divinity, but they're not born again, I'm telling you, you can teach them the scriptures. It's a supernatural. It's not natural to be able to understand scripture. It's not natural. It's only when you follow Christ do you understand it. Some of you guys don't like to pray out loud or read out loud or go into the Bible because you don't have confidence. It's got nothing to do with your ability Christ gives it to you. You don't have to listen to someone who's not born again, whether or not they've got an unbelievable degree or some qualification. Jesus chooses, he'd never be allowed in the temple, Matthew. He's a tax collector. He's working for the Romans. He was forbidden from going there, and Jesus picks him. He turns religion on its head, and he picks a guy who should never be in ministry, ever. He says, follow me. Matthew follows him. And we, how many times has that book been? How many sermons has come out of that theologian's book. Millions and millions and millions. Jesus comes for the unqualified, the disqualified, and he sends them out into the world in service. Supernatural. It's supernatural. It's not natural. I don't care what robe you wear, or what hat you wear, or what things you swing in church. If you're not a born-again Christian, you don't have a supernatural ability to teach people the Bible or to preach. You don't. It's a Holy Spirit. It's a Holy Spirit-inspired activity. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So remember, these guys also couldn't perform any of the rituals required by law. They were prostitutes, other tax collectors, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus hates rituals. He hates them. He hates them. It says in Galatians that, that if you still perform ritualistic, and we all do it, guys, all of us have a, little, have a little religious streak in us, me particularly, but rituals and religion, they take away the offense of the cross. Jesus fulfilled all of it. And we have to examine ourselves and see what we are still holding on to that has no basis in our faith. Have to examine your heart. What do I still do? What do I still hold on to? What are the things I grapple with that have no basis in the New Testament? As a basis for salvation. So that's what we're talking about. People think their good behavior, good works, somehow pleases God. And we do many things. We perform many things, many dead works that have no actual power. That's why we don't baptize small children. We don't baptize small children. It's a ritual. It has no place in the New Testament. It has no place in the New Testament. It has no power. You can dedicate your child. You also don't have to dress in a certain way to come to church. The only reason that we, we put in certain, certain requirements for dress is that we don't become a stumbling block for other people. So any reason, you can come here wearing whatever you want. I think there might be one requirement, which is wear clothing. <laughs> but, but apart from that, you don't have to wear anything. So, so there's a requirement that women just dress modestly, so you're not a stumbling block to guys. And we, we wear college shirts so that we respect you, depending on where you've come out of or what church you've come out of. But it's not required. It's not required in the Bible. Jesus says, stop worrying about the food you eat and the clothes you wear. Don't worry about it. It's irrelevant. Would we invite different people to church if we didn't have preferences? Would we behave differently? And he says, I've come to call sinners. I've come to call sinners. Jesus is after sinners. My favorite line often when I talk to people about the gospel is that they say, I'm a good, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Or my children are really good people. My children are good. There's a scripture in Isaiah that says your good deeds are like a menstrual, menstrual cloth to God. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Your good deeds means absolutely squat to God. Nothing. As a basis for salvation. You can be as good as you want to. It is not a basis for salvation. Good deeds mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. You can obey all day every single provision in this Bible, you can try. And finally, when you meet the King of Kings, you're going to realize you've made a mistake. Let's read on. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but the disciples do not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Fasting is about Jesus Christ. Fasting is a ritual which was satisfied by Jesus Christ. The only time that we fast is when we're seeking the heart of Jesus. 
Any other kind of fasting is dieting or starvation. It's a waste of time. See, the Pharisees, the guys say to him, why is it that we fast, but the guys hanging with you don't fast? That's what they're asking him. How come your disciples don't fast? And he says, because they're with me. It's only when I go that they have to fast. Do you understand? I prayed for a particular thing. I, I, I wanted some answers in my life, and so I decided to pray for 40 days. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do, don't ever do that. It was, it was the most hectic time of my life. Don't do it. I tried to fast. I lasted about four days. And I, was, and I was only fasting from one particular thing, and I couldn't do it. I failed. By the end of the week, it was done. I did try and pray and made notes. But, but we fast to, to get to the heart of God. To, to, we, 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 we deprive ourselves of something so we can focus on Jesus, only Jesus. It's just about Jesus. It's nothing else but Jesus. That's why he says, my guys are going to not fast while I'm here, but when I go, they'll fast, so they'll remember me, and they'll focus on me, and, and they'll, they'll cast their attention to me. That's why we fast. Don't fast for any other reason. Otherwise, it's a keto diet or banting or something else, but it's not. It's not. It has no spiritual power or effect. It's a waste of time. Let's carry on. No one sews a patch of unstrung cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment. So no one takes a new piece of cloth and sticks it onto an old jacket. Nobody does it. And nobody, surely. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. What is he talking about? What's he talking about, wineskins? He's speaking about the covenants. He's speaking about the covenants. He says, you can't take, you can't take new wine. New wine is the new covenant. You can't take new wine and put it in an old wine skin. You can't put the new covenant, you can't take a little bit of the old covenant, hanging on to all your rituals and all the things we like to do, and stick it into the new covenant. You can't, you can't mix the two. You can't take the new covenant and stick it onto the old covenant. There's just one covenant. There's just one. It's written in his blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. He's saying don't come with old stuff and start attaching the two together. Can't walk in both things. He says if you do, there'll be damage. He says there'll be a bursting. Can't do it, guys. He came to abolish all the ritualistic things we used to do. You don't have to come to church in long pants and clothes, shoes and college. You don't have to do that. Come in whatever you want. Baggies, slops, makes no difference. We have to dismantle all the old stuff and all the old thinking. You can't blend the two together. In, in the late 1800s, 400 Afrikaans I don't know what one would call them, Boers, fought against 2,000 Zulus at the Battle of Blood River. And they prayed to God and they said, we're going to enter into a covenant with you. If you give us victories over, over the, these people, we will keep this day as a Sabbath for you. And it was known as the Day of the Promise, the Day of the Covenant. There's no other covenant except the new covenant. And so what's happened is one nation, one nation, has led themselves to believe that they're in a covenant 
with God that excludes another nation. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. And, and, and he promises, Jesus says, if you do that, there will be a bursting. In South Africa, we are living under the consequences of those decisions. We're living under the consequences. There's no covenant 2.0. It's just the new covenant. It's just the new covenant. So we've got, to, we've got to look inside ourselves and see what are we still hanging on to from the old covenant. We also like to hang on to some of the promises in the old covenant. If I do this, God will bless me. If I don't do this, no, no, no. We live under grace. We've got to be very careful what we hold on to in the old covenant. Jesus came to cancel the legal demands of the laws. That's it. You're not under law anymore. You're under grace. The church, throughout the ages, wanted to control people with laws. They wanted to control the, 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 the congregations and the parishioners and the people. They, there's a, they wanted to try and control it. That's what happens in Galatians. They want to try and control the people. And so Paul says you don't have to. We live by the Spirit. The Spirit is what does the work now. It's the Spirit in you which does the work. We live under the new covenant written in the blood of Jesus. You don't have to perform any rituals to obtain salvation. You don't have to follow any Old Testament laws. We live by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We live as obedient people, but we spirit-led obedient people. We don't, we don't, we don't try and obey as a means for salvation. You can't, you can't obtain it that way. Jesus goes on this, this mission to try and explain wineskins and blood and new wineskins and, and unshrunk garments and patches. And, he, and, and it says, while, you can put up the new thing, the, the next, next verse. While he was saying this, while he was saying this, while he was telling them about new wineskins and old wine and new wine and old wineskins, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt down before him. A teacher of the law publicly knelt down in front of Jesus while he was saying this. As if to demonstrate, a synagogue leader knelt in front of Jesus, surrendered and submitted himself to Jesus at his feet. A man who understood all the laws and had performed all the rituals came and knelt at Jesus' feet. How many of us are scared or embarrassed to kneel before God, even privately? Even privately. He kneels before Jesus and he says, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did the disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, that's many menstrual clots, guys, 12 years, that's many good deeds, 12 years, suffering from physical illness, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touched his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Just receive. Your faith has healed you. Just receive. Your faith. Your faith has healed you. Take heart, son. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. She'd done nothing to deserve it. 
She just believed. <clears throat> when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing flutes, they're playing flutes, they're playing what's called a dirge. It's a, it's a mourning, it's a funeral song. You don't play death music when Jesus arrives. Go away. Put sec. You don't, you don't play dying music when Jesus is around. Not when the king of kings steps in. You don't play that music. The girl's not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. The crowd will always laugh. The crowd will always laugh. I was thinking this morning, I wonder if I sat down with a financial planner who wasn't saved and I said, I'm going to tithe. He'd probably say, you're insane. Because you can't afford it. I'm almost certain they'd look and say, tithing is just not an option for you. The crowd will always laugh. The religious people will always hate Jesus. You need to expect it. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all the region. When you kneel before Jesus, when you surrender things in your life before Jesus, there will be resurrection life. There will be resurrection life. Dead marriage, kneel before Jesus. Dead business, get before Jesus. Depression, get before Jesus. Addiction, kneel before Jesus. He will resurrect any dead thing if you get before Jesus. He'll tell the crowd to get outside, he'll tell the religious people to leave, and he'll resurrect you. He'll resurrect. He came to bring resurrection life, both now and eternity. There, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. He said, I've come to have mercy, not I don't want sacrifice. So you must know, if you ask for mercy, you're going to get it. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to do this? We have to believe. We have to receive. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believe in the Son, and you receive grace. Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes, and he said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. It's not the measure of your faith. It's because you have faith. And their sight was restored. He comes to bring spiritual healing to our sight and physical healing to our sight. Sometimes we can't see spiritually. Sometimes we can't see physically. But he comes to do both. He comes to heal both. I want to jump a little bit ahead, just for time's sake. Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He goes and he proclaims the gospel to people. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed the gospel. The death on the cross is enough for you. My blood is sufficient for you. I've paid in full, in full, a ransom for you. In full, it's finished. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. You never will. I've paid in full. It's like the two ladies we took out. We paid in full. They didn't pay in part. They didn't pay 10% or five, we, that we paid in full. We paid it all for them. Did they deserve it? Probably not. We paid in full. We paid in full. We paid in full. We have peace with the Father. We have an inheritance. We have a future. We have eternal life. He paid in full. We don't have to do anything for it. We don't have to do anything for it. 
I'm going to say it again. We don't have to do anything for it. We so often want to preach the obedience message here. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive it. You have to have a desire to start obeying the Word of God. You have to. Otherwise, I can't believe that you're born again. It would be difficult to have a regenerative spirit by the Holy Spirit, and then, and then you don't want to start changing your, the, the way you think and your heart attitude and start being convicted. It's impossible. It's impossible. But you don't have to go on a mission to try and be better or be good. you just got to receive Jesus. I'm nearly finished. Then finally, he said to Matthew, follow me. He said to Matthew, follow me. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When we receive Jesus, there will be a burning desire in us to go and serve outside of us, outside of these walls. To go and love people. If you have a revelation of Jesus, started out that scripture in Galatians, Galatians 1, received a revelation. If you receive a revelation, there's going to be a desire to help people. To go and tell them the good news. You're free. We've got to be careful not to taint it all the time. We've got to be careful. You saved, but you got it, but there's always a but in that Christ has set you free. He didn't free you to bring you back into bondage to anything. He broke bondage to sin, he broke bondage to the law, and he broke bondage to religion. That's what he did. He's done it. It's finished. Tyrant Daniels, who's the leader of the apostolic team, says that sometimes we can focus too much on the work of the Lord instead of the Lord of the work. It's good, eh? I want to focus on the Lord, the Lord of the work. He says, ask, ask the Lord of the harvest. Ask the Lord of the harvest. That's who we're going to ask. Can I ask the music team to come up? I want to pray for us this morning. <clears throat> I have many ritualistic things inside of me. If you lived in my house, you would see that um, often in my treatment of my sons, I'm, I'm very strict. I'm very, very strict. I'm very strict. There are things in me that God is busy with from a religion point of view. I'm not here to bash anybody over their head. But he wants us to dismantle those things. He wants us to dismantle. He wants us to be a church on fire for people. And so, and so you need to look at the things that we've done. If you've been baptized as a child and you're now a born-again Christian, I'm going to encourage you to, to think about being baptized as a born-again Christian. Scripture says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a commandment in Scripture. And I'll tell you why. What happens is when you're born again, there's a spiritual change that takes place in you. Your sin is washed away. You are clean. You're brand new. You're born again. But that spiritual change doesn't always translate in our minds. And so we carry around all the guilt and all the shame of our past lives and we seem to carry it on our backs incessantly. We just can't get rid of it, even though God is doing a work in us. And so he commands us to go and be baptized. And, I, and I, it took me years between being saved and being baptized. It took me years because I couldn't understand it. And I think I finally understand it. 
And I think the heart of God is, I want you to be baptized so you can see what I've done in you. So you can understand it. Because when you go under the water, you leave all the guilt and all the shame and all the mess of your life under the water. Because dead things can't come back out of the water. It's impossible. And then only the, the, the resurrected alive person comes out of the water. But sometimes we can live with all that stuff on us. And if you've been saved, if you've given your life to Christ, I'm going to encourage you. Come and be baptized and leave all the junk and all the mess and everything under the water. It can't follow you out of it. We leave it at Hobie Beach. And if it's very cold, John is going to be baptizing people, just so you know. I heard he chirped me last week. I listened. I listened. I know he spoke about circumcision and DNA. I heard that. And then I thought it would have to be me that would do that. I mean, would you trust a guy with a scalpel? He doesn't eat breakfast, huh? Would you? You know what I mean, guys? You know what I'm saying? With that particular procedure. Grant? Exactly. But I'm going to encourage you. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We've got to leave that stuff behind. And let's, and let's fulfill the commands. I want to ask this morning, because we've spoken about good deeds and living good lives, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. There is one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And it requires that we believe in Him and believe on Him, that we receive the free gift of grace through faith in Jesus, and we make a decision to follow Him. That's all. That's it. It's free. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Is there anyone here this morning that want to accept the free gift of grace this morning? Wants to accept it. Right, can I ask you to stand with me, please? I want to pray for you this morning. And then we're going to finish in worship. <clears throat> and I'm going to encourage you. When you worship, be free. Just be free. If you want to stand still and meditate, be free. If you want to raise your hands, be free. If you want to dance, just be free. You just got to be free in Jesus. But be who He's called you to be. Stop worrying about the guy next to you. I want to pray for us. I'm going to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would come and break religion inside of us and rituals inside of us so we can go out to the harvest field and we can preach the gospel, every single one of us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have placed your spirit inside every single person. Thank you that you are making us brand new. Thank you that you are doing a work in us. And it says in Scripture that you will complete that work. But make our hearts open to you. Make us radically wild for you, Lord God. We want to obey you. We want to follow you. We want to walk into everything you've called us to because your spirit is in us. Or to please our wives or to please our husbands or to please our family. But because your Holy Spirit is doing a transforming work in us. Your Holy Spirit is setting our hearts on fire for you. And on fire for a broken world. And I pray that there'll be men and women on fire for you in this room, Lord God. Would you set us on fire? Would you set our church on fire? Would you dismantle things in every single one of our hearts that is holding us back? Dead works that we've carried over because man has told us to do something which has no power. I pray that you'd break those things free from us. 
because you have come to abolish circumcision and every single ritual as the basis of salvation. There's one way to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we believe in you, we receive you, and we follow you. In Jesus' name.